All right, good morning, everyone. Sorry for the change of venue today. We had a, an attempt at Noah's flood over, apparently over the course of the break. So we're going to be, going to be picking back up in Proverbs chapter 6, looking at our <clears throat> Lutheran study Bibles. That's at page uh, 1008. And I would simply like to highlight to sort of recontextualize us, simply like to highlight the Christocentric nature of the Proverbs in general and of wisdom in specific. That wisdom is that which comes directly from the Lord. And in the same way we have a doctrine of the Word, capital W, of God, we have the wisdom, capital W, of God, both Christological titles for the Messiah. And so then we see surprisingly, maybe, at least to some, it was to me, that the book of Proverbs is essentially a Christ-centered text through and through, and that the wisdom therein is specifically a Christian kind of wisdom. Well, there may be all manner of practical applications, of course. It is wisdom that makes one wise unto salvation. And it is wisdom that differentiates one from the foolishness of the world. And so, common theme has been the bifurcation between this wisdom and righteousness and this foolishness and wickedness. These are two different ways, two different paths. They're mutually exclusive. Your pursuit will be one or your pursuit will be the other. In that respect, we can think even of our Lord's sayings about the broad and narrow paths. His enjoining us and urging us along the narrow path that leads to salvation. But then as we think of these two different ways and as we develop the themes broadly speaking in Proverbs, we see the emergence of these two different women. Wisdom personified as a woman, the righteous and godly woman. Then we see the antithesis of wisdom in the foolish and adulterous woman. And so what comes into focus is a motif wherein a father is speaking to his son and instructing his son to choose the right woman. And so we're going to go through those themes uh, as we continue throughout the conclusion of these first Proverbs, which are the book of Proverbs written by Solomon, uh, Solomon specifically. Pardon me if I'm stumbling a little more than usual. It's uh, kind of odd acoustics up here to be. It's better for preaching, (laughs) kind of. Hot acoustics to be teaching. If you look at chapter 6, verse 29, or excuse me, 20, here we have the beginning of the ninth address to a son. And this is where I had marked in my Bible that we left off. Is that similar to where you all had marked? We had covered up to that point? Good. Wanted to confirm that. At verse 20 we read, My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always, 
Tie them around your neck. A few brief comments to make. You see the parallelism between father and mother, commandment and teaching. The assumption here is that this is a father and mother who are already in fellowship with Yahweh, who have their sins atoned for, and, and in whom they place their trust. And so the commandment and teaching that they are giving and bestowing to their children, to their son here in this case, is what we would call catechesis, teaching a child in the way he should go, the fear of the Lord, etc. This language of binding them on your heart always and tying them around your neck is language reminiscent for what God has told his people to do with his holy law. And so there again, in a very poetic sense, we get that father and mother are teaching this son um, the way he should go, the will of the father. And that would be identical then to the covenant, the law given by God to his people. Okay, at verse 22, we have once again the theme of walking and the theme of the path. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. It's almost as if these commandments and teachings, this word, is living. And indeed it is. Of course, we know it is. Because again, this is not only a content of meaning, but it is meaning himself. This is Christ himself. So that as we follow the word, we are following Christ. As we um, abide in his word, he abides in us, and we are truly his disciples. And so he leads us on our path, he watches over us when we sleep, and he speaks with us when we're awake via his word. Just a beautiful, beautiful three verses here. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path from Psalm 119. You see that here. The commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the ways of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. And again, in the same way we see these hints, these notes of reference to the covenant, we see hints and notes to the reference of Yahweh betrothing himself to his people. And insofar as they turn away from him to other gods, they become idolaters, but then they also become, also become adulterers. So idolatry and adultery coupled together. Now, I don't want to make too much of this by way of sermonic form because this could be a sermon unto itself, But of course, if you need the commandment as a lamp and the teaching as a light, then obviously one can deduce that without these things, we are in darkness. So that means all human intellect, all human reason, all human wisdom is fallen and is darkness. And we must be enlightened 
by that teaching which is light and by that commandment which is a lamp. Otherwise, we're not going to know where we are going. Now, this path, of course, is not without its pain. And that is indicated here at the latter half of verse 23, that the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. No one wants to be reproved. No one wants to be rebuked. It, no one wants to be corrected. It stings the ego. It stings human pride. But that is a pain which in fact is necessary and good. That's the reproof of discipline or elsewhere um, the discipline and reproof of the Lord. This verse ties back at chapter 5 verse 12 where again we're in this like let's say you have gone down the wrong path. Let's say you have been seduced by the adulteress. Then at the end of your life You're going to groan and say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. That's not what you want. So rather than to embrace in knowledge and understanding that as the Lord leads us along, there's going to be uncomfortable reproofs of discipline, but we ought to recognize these as the way of life. So obviously a kind of humility is within that. Um, but I think also a way in which you can perceive the things going on in your life and say, well, this stinks. Why doesn't God do anything about it? And the answer may well be because that is his discipline of reproof. Right? He is working something upon you. May not necessarily or always be the case, But this isn't so much to be taken as a universal as it is simply a statement of fact, however broad or narrow that may be, that the commandment is a lamp, the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the very way of life. Okay, and they are such because they're going to preserve you from going toward or heading down the path with the evil woman, the smooth-tongued adulteress who lures you with her words. And again, the smooth tongue, her smooth speech. And so you see subtly then that motif that there are two different words. There is the word of the Lord and there is the smooth-tongued speech of wickedness that would draw you away from the Lord. Okay, let me pause there and let me see if you have any thoughts or reflections. I'm going to step out of the pulpit here briefly and have a sip of coffee. (laughs) Any thoughts or any reflections you have? Seeing none, we continue then at verse 25. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. And do not let her capture you with her eyelashes, the batting of her eyes. Have you ever noticed how women try to make their eyelashes longer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are those things called? Do you know? False eyelashes? What's the goo they put on that make them a little? Mascara. Mascara, that's the stuff. Mascara. 
So the mascara make them look thicker and maybe a little longer. Is that right? Yeah. And then um, there's these things called what now? False eyelashes. False eyelashes. Do they glue these things on? Oh my goodness. All right. So, we are warned of the spiritual equivalent of such things. <laughs> what is false, what is embellished, and this enticement of beauty, which of course we are warned everywhere in the scriptures that this sort of external beauty is deceptive and deceitful. Um, it can be used to allure us into the very opposite of what is true and beautiful and good. But it is also, at best, fleeting. So that external beauty is not to be given much credit to simply because as the flower fades and withers, so do we. Okay, so do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute, oh, this is an interesting verse. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. All right, quite the enigmatic statement here. And I think that there are more than a few things we can make of this. Now, if you only had the first half, for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, how would you reflect on that if that was a standalone statement? Cheap. You can ruin your life for nothing. With just a a small price paid, the consequences of that um, are and, you know, and, and there too you might in the same way you see that the beauty might be fleeting the pleasure might in fact be there but be fleeting and what follows is infinitely worse okay so at that level then we at least have a reflection on the low low price that Satan charges to make a mess of your life Now, if we add in this second statement, and maybe we can attempt to understand that on its own, but a married woman hunts down a precious life, we have some different options here. So if you have a married woman hunting down a precious life, obviously the point would be that um, if you are pursuing a woman who is married to another then that's going to end up hunting down your very life. Will it probably be her? Who would it probably be? Her husband. I heard someone say it. Her husband. So this then becomes a deadly business, cavorting with a married woman, because the result may be that, and again, Solomon, for whatever reason, has chosen to make this the woman active one hunting down a precious life because in a sense it's her but probably practically speaking in reality it's her husband who will be doing the hunting down so you have um, you have an interesting contrast between the prostitute and the married woman do you have an interesting contrast between the cost 
In the first half of the verse, it's a loaf of bread. In the second half of the verse, it's a precious life. So I think you can, you can reflect on the nature of adultery, whether with a prostitute or with a married woman. It has the potential to ruin your life and in different ways. Whether the cost be little or the cost be great, um, either way, it's going to end in your ruin. So those would be sort of my reflections, and and not just mine personally, I mean uh, general reflections on the text. Uh, Certainly a challenging set of lines here um, in terms of maybe the specific meaning, but of course when you back up and out, clear enough, the father is warning his son against the adulteress, against the idolatress, whether she takes the form of a prostitute or a married woman, whether she comes cheap or at the expense of one's life, either way, one's life is what is precisely and ultimately forfeit in that pursuit. Okay, any thoughts or comments on that? Uh, We are running a microphone, so I see a couple hands, and of course, this, a statement like this invites uh, thought and reflection. Um, these are, like so many of the scriptures, are meant to be kind of chewed on and mulled over. Now, in the version of the Bible I was looking at, which was the New American Standard, it said that the price of the prostitute is a loaf of bread, but the, mer- but the adulteress hunts for a precious life. And early on, it said, earlier on, it warned the, the son against the adulteress and her smooth words. A, a, a harlot doesn't need to use smooth words, right? It's a business transaction. It, it almost reads to me like better to go with a harlot than a, a, a married woman. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's what it's saying. I have a hunch. Out. That's what it sounds like. You know, in the ESV, it can sound like that, too. I mean, it really does. The price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread. A married woman's going to cost you your life, so hey, go to the prostitute instead. Yeah, it, it can read that way in English. I don't think that's the Holy Spirit's intent there. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I would sum it up as to just one step in the darkness, and you're in trouble. Yes, yes. One little teeny step. Right, very well said. And you're gone. Very well said. Yeah, and that's the, that's the fragility of evil. I think I'm all set. I'll stay if that's okay, and we'll have that set up. And we may end up using that next week based on the status of the room. Um, yes, exactly, and that's... You know, we, we remarked on this in Ecclesiastes because this is one of the points that Solomon, same author, brings out there, and that is the fragility of good, the fragility of goodness. And, you know, I might, you might articulate it this way. In light of the adultery, it's like you stayed clear, you stayed clear, you stayed clear, you fell. Does it count that you stayed clear? Of the temptation all those other times? No, it counts for nothing. (laughs) Or the fragility of good exhibited frequently and tragically in the lives of our youths where they're a good kid, they're a straight-A kid, they worked hard, they did all the extracurriculars, and then 
senior night, they went out and they drank and something terrible happened. And maybe their life was lost or destroyed. And you think, all that good destroyed by one single bad. So there is a mystery of the fallen world wherein good is profoundly fragile. By the way, I think that this also has to do with why goodness is so precious in God's sight and where particular kinds of goodness are so rare amongst the human race, they are to God like diamonds and jewels and, and you know, pearls the size of your fist. So when one of those examples from Scripture, that when you suffer willingly and humbly for doing what is right, this is a, and the English kind of struggles and stammers here, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Maybe given a, a little more fluid or elastic, but this is an extremely precious thing in the sight of the Lord. Why? Because it's so rare. I mean, who, who suffers for doing what is right gladly and willingly? The second someone comes against us, we immediately flare up with, oh, that's unjust. How dare they? And our egos get inflamed and uh, we become defensive and angry. Um, So to be inspired by the Holy Spirit, to come to a more enlightened way of humility, to be able to receive insults and punishments for doing what is right, to persist in them, to not despise the punishment or discipline that might come. Uh, these are a, extremely rare and extremely priceless in God's sight. Okay, I saw a hand waving around. Yep, yeah, please. The fragility of, of obedience to God's Ten Commandments I saw over and over in the classroom if there is not a, a daily recall to the children to be attentive to, for them to know God's Ten Commandments, having been with adults for nearly 90 years, I am just, I am floored as to the illiteracy of, of the adults that I've interacted with in this stage of life, whether they don't have a clue what the Ten Commandments are. And if you don't have that attentiveness to, the, to God's law, mm-hmm. uh, you're, you're lost to the wolves. Yeah, yeah. In this language, you're easily seduced and led into the darkness where, you know, if even what you think is light is darkness, then how much greater even the darkness, as Jesus says in one place. Please. To reflect on our culture today, I can remember back in the early, probably the 1960s, reading a cultural article saying this expression, uh, movies used to be uh, on the theme, she won't, but should she? And they have now become, she will, but should she? And I, I think of this popped into my head as we were talking this morning here. A pretty woman, a prostitute, becomes Cinderella in our society. Mm. 
Is that the Richard Gere movie? Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I was forced to watch that, I think, with my mom and my sister at one point in time. I didn't understand a lot of the appeal. <clears throat> yeah, right, right. In our culture, and I don't know if this is specifically your point, but in our culture there's a constant seduction to what is evil. And, and there's, almost this, there's almost this sense... Well, I think, I think you can see it even illustrated in something very simple and maybe even benign, okay? So let me just give this as an example. But if there's, if there's a guy and he's, he's hanging out with the guys at guys' night and he's saying, I'm not going to drink. It's like all the, all the other guys can think about is, why isn't he drinking? And we've got to get him to drink, you know? There, there's just this sense of, and, it, and it's, hey, we want him to join in the fun. But then we don't want him to be different. And what's he standing out for? And who does he think he is? And that, you know, that kind of impulse um, is puerile. And, and, and as much as that might, in fact, only be a weak analogy, there is this greater sense and this real vicious sense in fallen humanity that if they see purity, they want purity destroyed. We, I think we can see this chronically, even the way we treat our celebrities. We raise them up on a pedestal to godlike status, and then we like to shred them apart and watch them fall and be destroyed. There's nothing more gratifying to the American psyche uh, than this strange phenomenon, but it's a manifestation of this desire to uh, take that which is good and destroy it and pollute it. And then to celebrate that, to celebrate that as a good thing. So there are are many other examples that are popping into my mind, but I'm going to just... Stop. I think, I think the point's been made sufficiently. Now, I, I will point out tangentially, this is more clear, obviously, in the text of Ecclesiastes, more of a, of a protracted connection here in our context, but I'll make it anyway, that if we're going to talk about the fragility of good, that's true, and God likes the deck stacked against him impossibly, that's true. He likes to win under impossible circumstances. One of the ways he likes to deal an insult to the devil is, okay, hey, you've got all the power and every advantage, and oh, by the way, when I come to defeat you, I'm going to do so like in a diaper. How's that? (laughs) So we have to understand that there's this nature where if everything's stacked against us and everything's unfair, you're not wrong to think that. You just need to see that God wouldn't have it any other way. And he's going to have you be a victor against all odds. That's the repeating theme of to the one who overcomes. At the root of that is that word from which the brand Nike comes from. To the victor, to the one who overcomes, I will give. And he repeats this over and over to the seven churches such that we would then come to see ourselves as conquerors against impossible odds. I mean, against our very selves. And ourselves are the nasty, evil part of us, the fallen part of us. The good that I want to do, I do not. The evil that I don't want to do, that I keep on doing. So the evil part of us is stronger than the good part of us. That's what it means to go against oneself. To say nothing of going against the whole world and its culture and sway. To say nothing, against go, uh, to say nothing about going against Satan, who is described as the god of this world. So impossible, impossible odds but he who has begun this good work in you will bring it to completion. 
That's your victory. Or as St. Paul says, be patient and the God of peace, such delightful transition, the God of peace will crush the serpent under your heel as well. That's what this is all about. Now, if you have the fragility of good, I was good Monday, I was good Tuesday, I was good Wednesday, I was good Thursday, I was good the entire week, and then boom, on the second Monday I fell. I get no credit for that. I'm a sinner. The law cuts me no slack. That's true. The remedy of that then, of this fragility of good, this power of evil, is we have to have a greater and different kind of good still. And that's precisely the blood of Christ. That's precisely the good that then makes all evil weak and fragile. But it's only that blood of Christ. It's only that righteousness of Christ, credited and given to you, received only by faith and apart from works. That's precisely its strength. And this is the right way in which you could narrowly say, you know, you can't out grace. It's like, well, don't try, please. Okay, but that's like, I can't, you know, you can't out-poison yourself in, the medicine, in such a way that the medicine can't bring you back. But don't try. That would be foolish and painful and awful for you. Okay, but the principle does stand that where you have on one side of the coin the fragility of the good and the power of evil, when you compare evil in all its multiplicity and strength to the blood of Christ, all of a sudden that evil is completely fragile. It can do its absolute worst in and through you and not touch the righteousness you have in Christ Jesus, precisely because it's a righteousness apart from your works. Make sense? So God has his antidote on the other side of the coin there, too, in the blood of his son. Okay, um, back to the text. Anything further? I'm not looking at my wall clock that's off to the left, so usually. So let me know if I'm running out of time, too, please. Yeah? Uh, get you the microphone here. Okay. From what you said, is it true then that all of us take delight, even the Christian, in seeing someone fall? And Mm. I know that's a strange question. Mm, Yeah, no, it would be the sinful nature within the Christian that has a sort of sick and sadistic. Within the Christian, as soon as you identify that this is something you're enjoying, you want to repent, and crucify and drown that impulse within you. Have compassion upon the person that's falling and seek the, and lift them back up and seek those who haven't fallen in one way or another and um, uphold and uplift them so that they don't. Yeah, that would be, a, that would be a, a characteristic of the fallen flesh. So in an unbeliever, they're nothing but fallen flesh. In a Christian, you have the fallen flesh that exists, but the new man within who can identify, repent, drown, crucify. Yeah, thanks for that clarification. Okay, so yeah, I think going back to the comment that Bob made as we get back into the text and are going to transition from verse 26 to 27 is apropos. Um, Namely, it's just one little thing and that's it. It's like a hairpin trigger. So a prostitute's only a loaf of bread, a married woman huts down your life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes and not be burned? And the answer is no, obviously. 
And so also then you can't sort of like dabble in adultery or dabble in idolatry. It's a binary event. In the same way that if you carry fire, you're going to be burned. You can't carry fire and not be burned. You can't dabble with carrying fire next to your chest. It's going to light you and your clothes on fire. Okay, so that would serve rhetorically as an admonition to stay far away from it because once you've done it, you've done it. It's a line that's crossed. There's no dabbling. All right, parallel line in verse 28. Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Now, maybe some of you can. I don't know. But that's certainly not the psalmist's point. The psalmist's point is that no, most people, if they attempted to do this, their feet would be burned. So also then, you can't go into the adulteress or go into idolatry, go into unfaithfulness or walk away from God's wisdom. I mean, to put it in all these terms, the text has put it in, and expect not to be burned or expect there to be no effect. There's going to be. All right, we sort of wrap up and circle back in verse 29. So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. And this is an observation from Solomon, which is interesting, of course, given his own personal circumstances. But it's an observation, an observation that shows that God indeed watches and judges all. So that's how Solomon can simply say he's not going to get away with it. Okay, so we have a little bit of a thematic inclusio, or at least a a thread woven back on itself here between um, the departure in uh, verses 24 and 25, the introduction of the adulteress, the batting of her eyelashes, the prostitute, the woman, and then we go into these examples uh, with the fire, and then back to the one who goes to his neighbor's wife. And then at verse 30, Shifting gears a little bit. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods to his house. Okay, I think the study note is actually really good and efficient at drawing the connection between the preceding and this verse or metaphor. So if you look down at the study note, it says, metaphor that likens fornication to theft. If a thief steals food out of hunger, people may sympathize with his situation, but if he is caught, he will have to make compensation anyway, far beyond the cost of the items. Okay, that's the sevenfold. Again, fornication and adultery are costly sins demanding consequences. Right? And here you might compare the consequences too. I mean, for, uh, and again, it's not my intent to speak lightly about this, but for, for one 
instance of lack of judgment, lack of discernment. I understand there's many, many steps. No one just slips and falls into adultery, okay? But let's say many compounding bad decisions lead one into this uncharacteristic instance. It doesn't matter. You're going to pay for it. And that's the same then with the thief, even though you might sort of sympathize with his plight. He's just trying to satisfy his hunger Even so, when he's caught, the full weight of the law falls upon him. So that seems to be the parallel in these two cases. I think the study notes right in in making that connection. Okay, verse 32. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. So again, adultery... um, is a self-destructive, that's where St. Paul will talk about it being a sin against one's own body. So adultery lacks sense, he who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. And again, this seems to be connected in the interwoven way in which this section is with the second part of verse 26, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Again, concretely speaking, that would be her husband, and that is what's happening here in verse 34. Jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. So you're going to have to seek your uh, forgiveness elsewhere. Of course, God forgives, even where human beings won't. And that's probably part, at least, of... Psalm 51, where David himself has been caught in this adulterous situation. And uh, he prays that kind of very strange prayer. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And I don't think David's saying, I didn't sin against Uriah when I had a murder or against you know, Bathsheba when um, I brought her up. I, I don't think he's saying that or would make that case. But this is a confession of full guilt before God that God might absolve him and might cleanse him and purge him, that he would be clean once more. Okay, so I think that that is, um, you know, obviously we're, we're inserting that into the text here, but I think it's a reflection we as Christians would necessarily have, that even where there is no forgiveness with man and just pure, raw justice with man, Um, With God, there is forgiveness. Okay, that brings us to a close of uh, this ninth address to a son. We're about to enter into the tenth and final address to a son. These kinds of little sections, poetic sections, this um, genre of address to a son. Before we do, uh, any Anything um, left over that you want to talk about about that ninth address, verse 20 through verse 35? Okay, I see a hand here.
sorry if I'm being a little slow, but I was trying to figure out what the false eyelashes would be spiritually, like one example. And, and then if at the end of um, this, it says he will accept no compensation. So if it seemed enticing that you could um, interpret the Bible however you want, I used to get that message before joining the Lutheran Church. Um, is it saying that the Father won't forgive us for, go, for being adulterous to what we should be doing spiritually? Or am I reading that too literally? Mm, yeah, I think they're a little too literally. Um, so I don't mean to be overly simplistic about it, but if we were to make a distinction between law and gospel, this section would very clearly be law. It would be warning us of temporal, so let's just go at the temporal level and the physical earthly level, that adultery um, at the physical earthly level always comes with consequence. And it's not law by way of empty threat, it's law by way of statement of fact. One plus one equals two. Do this and this is going to befall you. So that's the nature of the law. The law is never empty threat or like just psychological or something like, hey, feel bad. Um, In this respect, it really actually, I mean, the law really actually has some, the way that philosophers will talk about natural law or natural consequence, uh, the way that um, some will speak of karma, there's this aspect, I'm not saying those are identical to the divine law, but there's this sense in which justice is done. That's the, that's the law. Okay, so this section, just at, at its base text level, is warning against adultery okay, and against idolatry, against turning away from Yahweh and away from his teachings and commandments and pursuing this. It's going to have a consequence. It's going to fall upon you. Okay. Now, strictly speaking, that's all the text is saying, I think. I don't see a lot of gospel in this section. But that is one thing that you can see that the law does, is wherever it accuses, it does so in such a way that you can see the gospel, Christ, namely, bearing that sin such that we can find forgiveness, such that at times God We'll see to it that that kind of karmic nature of justice, the karmic nature of the law, doesn't befall us. The scriptures have us marvel from time to time that he does not treat us according to our sins and their desert, even in a temporal sort of way. But then also, because Christ has borne them, there is no eternal penalty. And in fact, we may go even having committed Adultery, which is about the most serious violation of trust you can have between human being and human being, husband and wife, or idolatry, which is the most serious breach of trust you can have between you and God, that even in these profound instances of sin, there is one with whom there is forgiveness. And that is the awesome and fearful forgiveness of God in Christ Jesus, that he takes our sins and lays them upon his son. His son willingly and lovingly accepts them, bears the penalty. And in that awesome and fearful act of the cross, 
Forgiveness of sins. Restoration. The cleansing of the heart. The new spirit within are all given freely by God. So that's the larger biblical context then of these verses. And I think if we see them functioning within within that biblical frame, we're seeing the whole picture, even if it's not explicit right here in the text. So there is there is at like level one, I you know, to quote John, I write these things to you that you may not sin. Very clearly the author's intent is don't engage in this stuff, it's going to be a disaster for you. Okay? But then there's that secondary reflection of John and a secondary reflection for us. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, the righteous one, Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, so that's the dual nature here is don't do this in the first place. That's plan A. I have fallen, I have been foolish, I have gone astray. Don't despair. You have a Savior in the righteous one, Christ Jesus, who is the forgiveness of your sins. Okay. What do I do now that I've been forgiven and absolved? What does Jesus say to the adulterous woman? Go and sin no more. Or once more with John, I say these things to you, I write these things to you, that you may not sin. Plan A is always, for the Christian, plan A is always avoid sin. Avoid the disaster. But plan B is if you've created disaster, don't fall into despair or unbelief. Be forgiven, be redeemed, be restored, be rebuilt, and then go back along plan A, which is don't sin. Go and sin no more. Does that, does that help make sense? Does that help flesh everything out in a broader biblical context? Okay. I'm seeing that we're... Uh, oh, all right. One, one final comment. If you need to go, I'm seeing we're, we're maybe a couple minutes over. If uh, you need to go, feel free, but... I, I was noting there's a, actually a little bit of a contrast made near the end between thieving and adultery in that it seems like adultery, at least in this life, it sounds like, or a, a thieving, you can make up for it. You can give seven times. You know, mm. you can do the, you can sort of un, unrob the store by giving, <laughs> them, giving them money. Okay, yeah. Right? But you can't uncheat. Mm-hmm. Right? Once that once you've committed adultery, there's nothing you can do with that. Yeah. Now, really, you can't un- unsteal the store either, but or unrob the store. But uh, then when we look at, at Psalm 51, the thing I think is interesting, why did David say, I've only sinned against you? I haven't sinned against Uriah. Mm-hmm. I haven't sinned against Bathsheba. Maybe because if it were just a matter of the harm done to Uriah and Bathsheba, God could heal that, mm-hmm. right? The problem is we've broken our faith with God. That's the thing that really needs to be fixed and that only, right, something like a sac- you know, God sacrificing himself for us can do it, mm-hmm. right? If it were just physical harm to someone, that can all be healed as if it never was, but by God. Yeah. But... He needs to do something special for us because of the fact that we broke with him. Right, yeah. I, worthwhile and true reflections on that psalm. Um, and I don't think anything I said earlier, I don't think what you've said just now uh, is right and true. Is it us? 
the meaning or necessarily even penetrates yet to the depths of the meaning um, of that particular line. I, I think that that plums very, very deeply, and it's things that we haven't touched on, but those aspects are true. Those aspects are true. And I liked what you said, too, at the beginning, that you know one of the things we could reflect on is that the nature of the seventh commandment and the nature of the sixth commandment shows a stratification within the commandments themselves. Stealing is a lesser commandment. Thou shalt not steal is a lesser commandment than thou shalt not commit adultery, which is a lesser commandment than thou shalt not murder. And you can think about this very concretely in this frame, right? That if you steal, there's always the chance that you could repay. And even if you can't, it's just stuff, okay? It might be precious stuff, but it's stuff. And then in adultery, you can't undo that. You can't repay that. There's been a breach of trust there, right, that's deeper. And then, of course, murder. You can't bring someone back to life. And so you see a hierarchy of the commandments sort of undergirding this as well. So I appreciate that reflection you had. Okay, so next week, let's jump into chapter 7. The Lord be with you.